0: What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2 frankenstein and i am your host your friend your your lover your literary mansplainer in chief and soon to be georgianologist mid-afternoon ready for something i don't think i've ever done here on the podcast um but you'll know what it is instantaneously <sniffs> Cracking open a diet coke Mm mm we had a graduation party for the daughter and there's some uh there's some soda pops left over. We don't normally keep soda, soda pop in the house, but crisp, cool Diet Coke sitting out there in the cooler. Decided to get myself one of them as I, uh, as I headed into the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library for some Frankenstein reading. And, you know, it's got caffeine. It's just like some tea. It's, it's getting to be mid-afternoon. Normally, this is when I take a nap. But then after this, I've got a Zoom pitch for a TV show that I'm trying to develop. So far, no, no takers. That's just the way it is, with TV shows. You know, you got to be a hot property. I'm not a hot property, tepid property at best. You know, or maybe about as cool. I'm about as cool in this business as this icy diet coke, which is to say, not hot. It's one of them midget cans. You know, when them little midget cans of diet coke. I like. I kind of like those little midget cans when it comes to the full sugar ones, because you're like, all right, I'm not drinking as many calories, but then. With the diet ones where there's no calories, I'll take a full can. I don't care, you know? I'm 50 years old. I'll drink a full can of Soda Pop. I like that burn. I like that Diet Coke burn. Well, I'll tell you who's burning right now. Victor Frankenstein, you know? He just had another conversation with the big buddy where he said, you know, the big buddy caught him sitting there in the Orkies making the She-Buddy, and then they met eyes. You know, and uh, in an instant, Frankenstein undid all of his work. We didn't. He didn't specify exactly what that meant, but in my mind, he's just pulling, ripping out organs, ripping out body parts, uh, and throwing them on the floor. I don't know if that's what happened, but that's that was what was in my mind. He was in, he was so close to animating the she-buddy, and then one look from the demon, he decided, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then. You know, Big Buddy was mad, obviously. He's like, what are you doing? This was, my, this was my one chance at happiness. And Frankenstein's like, I can't do it. I can't do it, Big Buddy. I can't unleash this kind of evil on the world. And so Big Buddy's like, well, fuck it. You know, if you're not, not going to do what I want, then I'm going to destroy you, especially on your wedding night. And Victor Frankenstein still, still seems to think that that means he's going to kill him and not poor Elizabeth. But that's who's going to get killed. But Victor Frankenstein can't figure that out fucking moron. So, Big Buddy has just rowed away in a boat, all right? Frankenstein watched him go, all upset. Let's continue, Volume 3, Chapter 3. The night passed away, and the sun rose from the ocean. My feelings became calmer, if it may be called calmness, when the violence of rage sinks into the depths of despair. I left the house, the horrid scene of the last night's contention, and walked on the beach of the sea, which I almost regarded as an insuperable barrier between me and my fellow creatures. Nay, a wish that such should prove the fact stole across me. I desired that I might pass my life on that barren rock. Wearily, it is true, but uninterrupted by any sudden shock of misery. If I returned, it was to be sacrificed, or to see those whom I most loved die under the grasp of a daemon whom I had myself created. Okay, so he does understand that other people may die, okay? He, he does understand that. But I don't know why he can't put it together that he's going to kill Elizabeth. That's what he's going to do. He's going to, he, you know, they're going to be standing there on the altar. You know, the priest is going to say, does anybody object? Big Buddy's going to spring from the rafters and with one karate chop, split her in two. Right? Right, you know, right down the, from her head down to her toes. Hi-ya! And, you know, she'll just, she'll just cleave in two in front of everybody. Uh which actually would have been a very good ending for the film The Graduate. Right? Dustin Hoffman enters and he sees his beloved on the altar. She's getting married to some square. If he it's, it's, you know, instead of her running out and them getting on a bus, if he just run down the aisle and karate chopped the dude in two, that would have been a much more satisfying ending for the graduate. You know, they could have had Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel playing there in the background as, you know, they're doing. he's doing a karate chop massacre. Sort of a Quentin Tarantino version of The Graduate, but with the soundtrack still by Simon and Garfunkel. Much, much better ending than the kind of, you know, uh, ennui-ish ending of them in the back of the bus with the weird smiles on their faces. Because they realize they just committed themselves to themselves. And now what are they going to do? Well... Look, why did I get on a a graduate tangent? I don't know. I can tell you this. Buck Henry, who wrote it, he died. (sighs) I walked about the aisle like a restless specter, separated from all it loved and miserable in the separation. When it became noon and the sun rose higher, I lay down on the grass and was overpowered by a deep sleep. I had been awake the whole of the preceding night. My nerves were agitated and my eyes inflamed by watching and misery. The sleep into which I now sunk refreshed me, and when I awoke, I again felt as if I belonged to a race of human beings like myself, and I began to reflect upon what had passed with greater composure." Yet still the words of the fiend rung in my ears like a death knell. They appeared like a dream, yet distinct and oppressive as a reality. Um, now I'm reminded of, as I sip a Diet Coke, oh, that burns. I'm reminded of, you know, I, I'm, look, I devoted a whole episode to UFOs a couple of weeks ago. I moved on from UFO research, not that I'm not that I've stopped that I haven't, but now I'm doing near-death experience research. Great thing about near-death experiences is, uh, you know, what this is? This is when you die, right? Clinically, technically, you die, but then you have some sort of experience. The classic one is you go through a tunnel. You see there's a blind, there's, you know, there's a rich enveloping light. You see dead people or, or dead relatives, or maybe a religious figure, or maybe other beings of light. They usher you to the other side. There's a life review. The whole thing. Well. What's uh, interesting about it, and I'm reminded of it because I'm, you know, still the words of the fiend rung in my ears like a death knell, they appeared like a dream, yet distinct and oppressive as a reality. Some people have uh, negative near-death experiences where they go to a dark place, a kind of hellish type experience where they are uh, greeted by uh, misery and depression and agony and fear. Now, sometimes in those experiences, they then come out of that into the higher plane, you know? But anyway, the cool thing about the near-death experience, similar in a way to the UFO thing, is that they're real, right? These are actual experiences that people have. These are real events that occur. The question is, where do they come from? Are they just, you know, the dying gasps of an asphyxiating brain, which actually doesn't seem to be the case? Or are they, you know, generated somehow by the consciousness in its uh, as a kind of uh, you know consolation prize for dying, or is there in fact something else going on, something transdimensional? I don't know. But but when you look at the UFO thing and the NDE thing, there are a lot of uh, overlaps. So the question is, are they are those two phenomena somehow related? I don't know. I like to think about it, but I don't know. But what's interesting, I'll I'll get back to the book in a second, I really will, I'm not going to go on too much of a tangent here, but what's interesting is I was listening to a doctor talking about it last night, a guy who does, a cardiologist, and he was saying that unquestionably, definitionally, there is life after death, in the sense that you can be clinically dead, the brain has flatlined, the heart has stopped, and consciousness continues, Right? We know that, uh, at least in some minority of people, possibly a much, a much larger number of people, you know, like it, it, only something like 10 to 20 percent or maybe as high as 30 percent of people who come back from these experiences recollect them. You know, other people say, I don't remember anything. Most people say I don't remember anything. But it's entirely possible that more people are having them than we know. But like with a dream that you awaken from, you don't always remember your dreams. You may not always awaken your near-death experience. But the larger point is, there is life after death. The question is, how long does it last? Does it last minutes? Does it last hours? Does it last until the dissolution of the body itself? Nobody knows. But for at least a minority of people, there is life after death tantalizing to think about. And now I'm already resentful because I'm already like in the headspace of, oh, great. Now I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to get to have a near-death experience or I'm not going to have a post-life experience when I die. I'm going to be one of the majority who just dies and doesn't remember anything. And I'm going to be resentful of that in death, even though according to my own theory of this and my own resentment that I'm already experiencing, I won't remember anything because I'll be dead. I won't, there'll be nothing. But I really, I'm looking, I'm now at a point where I'm almost looking forward to dying because I want to see what the fuss is all about. Because apparently it's great. These NDEs, apparently terrific. You just have such a good time. You know, everybody's, hey, hey. you're filled with love. You're filled with love, Mary. The sun had far descended and I still sat on the shore, satisfying my appetite, which had become ravenous with an oaten cake. He just had an oaten cake in his pocket or something. When I saw a fishing boat land close to me, and one of the men brought me a packet. It contained letters from Geneva and one from Clerval, entreating me to join him. He said that he was wearing away his time fruitlessly where he was, that letters from the friends he had formed in London desired his return to complete the negotiation they had entered into for his Indian enterprise. He could not any longer delay his departure, but as his journey to London might be followed, even sooner than he now conjectured by his longer voyage, meaning to India, he entreated me to bestow as much of my society on him as I could spare. He besought me, therefore, to leave my solitary isle and to meet him at Perth, Perth, that we might proceed southwards together. This letter, in a degree, recalled me to life, and I determined to quit my island at the expiration of two days. Yet before I departed, there was a task to perform, on which I shuddered to reflect. I must pack up my chemical instruments, and for that purpose, I must enter the room which had been the scene of my odious work, and I must handle those utensils, the sight of which was sickening to me. So, wait a second. So, he's just left a corpse sitting in his laboratory, like a wolf or something, had been chewing at a corpse, you know, because he dismantled the whole thing. And what was he thinking? Like, oh, I'll just leave this for housekeeping. Like, what was he thinking? Yeah, I'll just, now this is fine. I'll just, you know, I'll just tip an extra five quid and it'll be fine. You can't leave corpses laying around. You just can't do it. It stinks up the place and it stains everything. You can't do it, Victor. So he's like, oh, I got to do this. You know, I got I to gotta pack up my chemical instruments and handle the utensils. Oh, and I guess I got to do something about the fucking corpse laying on a slab in the middle of my rented room. Yeah, buddy, you got to do something about that. All right, I'm going to sip a little Diet Coke here, take a little break. When we return, we'll see what he does about the She-Buddy corpse just laying there in pieces. Back in a moment on Obscure. And we're back. Uh, Victor Frankenstein leaving a mess wherever he goes. corpse of the she-buddy just kind of laying around. And let's see what he does with it. Back to the book. The next morning at daybreak, I summoned sufficient courage and unlocked the door of my laboratory. The remains of the half-finished creature whom I had destroyed lay scattered on the floor. And I almost felt as if I had mangled the living flesh of a human being. Well, you did, brah. You did. I understand that she wasn't alive when you did it, but in fact, you mangled twice the living, well, I I I guess not the living flesh, but the flesh of a human being. Once when you assembled the corpse pieces, and then again, when you decided, oh no, I can't do this. So you just ripped them limb from limb like a goddamn maniac. I paused to collect myself and then entered the chamber. With trembling hand, I conveyed the instruments out of the room, but I reflected <laughs> I reflected that I ought not to leave the relics of my work to excite the horror and suspicion of the peasants. Yeah, you, that... <laughs> I reflected on that. Huh, I was about to leave and then I looked back and I saw the room was strewn with blood and organs. And I thought, huh, maybe I should do something about that. uh fine, I'll be the bigger man. I'll clean up my mess. What a psychopath. Uh, I accordingly put them into a basket with a great quantity of stones, and laying them up, determined to throw them into the sea that very night. And in the meantime, I sat upon the beach, employed in cleaning and arranging my chemical apparatus. Did you scrub the room? Did you take out a mop and some water and scrub the room? Because my guess is, even after you put all the body parts in a basket... It's still, there's still going to be a lot of blood and gore on the floor and the walls from where you tore the thing apart. You goddamn freak show. Nothing could be more complete than the alteration that had taken place in my feelings since the night of the appearance of the daemon. I had before regarded my promise with a gloomy despair, as a thing that, with whatever consequences, must be fulfilled. But I now felt as if a film had been taken from before my eyes, and that I, for the first time, saw clearly. The idea of renewing my labors did not for one instant occur to me. The threat I had heard weighed on my thoughts, but I did not reflect that a voluntary act of mine could avert it. I had resolved in my own mind that to create another like the fiend I had first made would be an act of the basest and most atrocious selfishness, and I banished from my mind every thought that could lead to a different conclusion." Well, what's more selfish? I honestly don't know. Well, I mean, what's more selfish? He's saying it would be selfish to make another, uh, to make a she-buddy because who knows what evil that she-buddy will unleash on the world and he'd be doing it just to save his own skin. Okay. I mean, I guess that could be viewed as selfishness. On the other hand, it could be more selfish not to do it because you abhor doing it and to then have the big buddy just unleashed on the world, killing people willy-nilly as an act of vengeance. Fact of the matter is, you were selfish in the beginning by making this thing, you know, right at the at the start uh, without thinking about the consequences of it. You know, we I'm chiding him for not reflecting more on whether or not he should get rid of the body parts of the she-buddy that he did not animate. But the fact of the matter is, like, he has not shown a great propensity for self-reflection to begin with because he made a living creature a living uh, human-like person without really reflecting on what that would mean he really spent no time thinking about oh well well, what if this works and there's a dude running around that i made from spare parts what's that going to be like he never thought about that for an instant he just wanted to know whether he could do it well buddy you could have done that with a cat you know you could have done that with a cat but no rather than exploring proof of concept you just went you you know you just scaled the thing right up you scaled the thing right up to eight feet tall what a maroon Between two and three in the morning, the moon rose, and I then, putting my basket aboard a little skiff, sailed out about four miles from the shore. The scene was perfectly solitary. A few boats were returning towards land, but I sailed away from them. I felt as if I was about the commission of a dreadful crime. You are, dude. That's what you're doing. I mean, is it a dreadful crime? I don't know. It's a crime. You've you've mutilated corpses, and now you're getting rid of the evidence. And avoided with shuddering anxiety any encounter with my fellow creatures. At one time, the moon, which had before been clear, was suddenly overspread by a thick cloud, and I took advantage of the moment of darkness and cast my basket into the sea. I listened to the gurgling sound as it sunk and then sailed away from the spot. The sky became clouded, but the air was pure, although chilled by the northeast breeze that was then rising. Why, why does it matter that the breeze was northeast, I wonder? It seems like an unnecessary adjective. But it refreshed me and filled me with such agreeable sensations that I resolved to prolong my stay on the water and fixing the rudder in a direct position, stretched myself at the bottom of the boat. Clouds hid the moon, everything was obscure, and I heard only the sound of the boat. As its keel cut through the waves, the murmur lulled me, and in a short time, I slept soundly. I do not know how long I remained in this situation, but when I awoke, I found that the sun had already mounted considerably. The wind was high, and the waves continually threatened the safety of my little skiff. Now, I'm not a sailor, but is that a smart thing to do? You've got a little boat there, and you just decide between two and three in the morning, you go out to sea about four miles from shore, and then you go to sleep? Is that a smart thing to do? When you're already planning on leaving the Orkies within a day to go see your friend Clerval? I mean, I'm not a sailor. Maybe it's perfectly safe. I really don't know. But it seems like one of the things you don't do is go to sleep in the bottom of your boat when you're out there all by yourself in the middle of the night. I don't know. Maybe it's a perfectly reasonable insane thing to do. It doesn't seem like it to me. I found that the wind was northeast, yeah, like it was before, and must have driven me far from the coast from which I had embarked. I endeavored to change my course, but quickly found that if I again made the attempt... The boat would be instantly filled with water. Thus situated, my only resource was to drive before the wind. I confess that I felt a few sensations of terror. I had no compass with me and was so slenderly acquainted with the geography of this part of the world that the sun was of little benefit to me. I might be driven into the wide Atlantic and feel all the tortures, tortures of starvation or be swallowed up in the immeasurable waters that roared and buffeted around me. I had already been out many hours and felt the torment of a burning thirst, a prelude to my other sufferings. I looked on the heavens, which were covered by clouds that flew before the wind, only to be replaced by others. I looked upon the sea. It was to be my grave. Fiend, I exclaimed, your task is already fulfilled. I thought of Elizabeth, of my father, and of Clerval, all left behind, on whom the monster might satisfy his sanguinary and merciless passions. Sanguinary meaning bloody. You probably already know that. This, but, I, but I'm proud that I knew what it meant, so I had to say it, because I was proud, because once in a while, I see a word that I know. This idea plunged me into a reverie, so despairing and frightful, that even now... When the scene is on the point of closing before me forever, I shudder to reflect on it. So I feel like I got the answer to my previous question, which is, is it a good idea to go to sleep at the bottom of your boat when, you, when you're in a tiny little boat and you don't have a compass or water or food? And I think the answer that he's telling me now is, no, that's not a good idea. So I feel like I now understand uh, from, a, from a nautical point of view that that probably isn't a good idea if any of you thought to yourselves upon hearing the first part of the story that he had gone out and it was nice out um, and then thought to yourself, I would would like to do that. I would like to go to sleep in the bottom of my boat with no real idea of where I'm going or how to get back to shore. Um, I feel like the second part of the story tells you not to do that. Some hours passed thus, but by degrees as the sun declined towards the horizon, the wind died away into a gentle breeze, and the sea became free from breakers. But these gave place to a heavy swell. I felt sick and hardly able to hold the rudder, when suddenly I saw a line of high land towards the south." Almost spent as I was by fatigue and the dreadful suspense I had endured for several hours, this sudden certainty of life rushed like a flood of warm joy to my heart and tears gushed from my eyes. How mutable are our feelings and how strange is that clinging love we have of life even in the excess of misery. I constructed another sail with a part of my dress and eagerly steered my course towards the land. It had a wild and rocky appearance, but as I approached nearer, I easily perceived the traces of cultivation. I saw vessels near the shore and found myself suddenly transported back to the neighborhood of civilized man. I carefully traced the windings of the land and hailed a steeple which I at length saw issuing from behind a small promontory. As I was in a state of extreme debility, I resolved to sail directly towards the town as a place where I could most easily procure nourishment. Fortunately, I had money with me. As I turned the promontory, I perceived a small, neat town and a good harbor, which I entered, my heart bounding with joy at my unexpected escape. As I was occupied in fixing the boat and arranging the sails, several people crowded towards the spot. They seemed much surprised at my appearance, but instead of offering me any assistance, whispered together with gestures that at any other time might have produced in me a slight sensation of alarm. As it was, I merely remarked that they spoke English, and I therefore addressed them in that language. "'My good friends,' said I, "'will you be so kind as to tell me the name of this town and inform me where I am?' "'You will know that soon enough,' replied a man with a hoarse voice. Maybe you are come to a place that will not prove much to your taste, but you will not be consulted as to your quarters, I promise you. Oh, it sounds like he's going to get arrested. Mary, is he going to get arrested? What did he do? I was exceedingly surprised on receiving so rude an answer from a stranger, and I was also disconcerted on perceiving the frowning and angry countenances of his companions, why do you answer me so roughly, I replied. Surely it is not the custom of Englishmen to receive strangers so inhospitably. Oh, oh that's my alarm. Well, that's my alarm telling me that, uh, that I have to run because, I, I, like I said, I have, a, uh, I have a Zoom call for a TV show that I have to pitch. And so I guess I, I, guess I have to leave it there. I'm, I'm now, uh, leave it there. I'm now speaking like, uh, well, I guess like I always speak when I'm talking to Mary. Another sip of Diet Coke. Oh, that's good Diet Coke. It has warmed considerably. So perhaps my television pitch will be received a little more warmly itself. So who knows? So yeah, the chapter was just about done, but I can't keep going. Uh, but basically it looks like he's going to get thrown in jail for something. Maybe something to do with the daemon. We don't know. I guess we'll find out. Exciting, though, right? I mean, an exciting point to leave it. Uh, You know, the story's picking up pace. All right. So we'll leave it there. We'll get back together next week. We'll have some fun. You know, we'll have a lot of laughs with Victor Frankenstein and his merry band of buddies, Clerval, Elizabeth, and all the rest on another hilarious episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself here in the wilds of Connecticut where I record and elsewhere original music by Craig Wedren. If you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and drop in some stars for us, why don't you? Write a kind review, why don't you? It helps. How does it help? I have no idea, but it makes me feel good.